take God's Word and turn with me to the book of Malachi, last book in the Old Testament. This is the second message in the series that we're calling Renewing Our Faith. Renewing Our Faith is supposed to be something that's ongoing in the Christian life. Uh, the Bible tells us that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. There's a constant need for us to renew our faith in the Lord and to grow in our faith in Christ. And today's message I'll be talking about worship, and the title of my message is Giving God Your Best in Worship. So today we want to focus on renewing our worship. Um, This is the hard part of the message for me this morning on my way here. You know, it's a, um, a drive that sometimes is uncertain. Um... You know the pathway, you don't know where they're going, but anybody who commutes to work knows that things don't always go the way you plan. And so I'm not long into my journey, not even on the interstate highway yet, and I pull up to a red light behind the car in front of me, and uh, the light turned green, the car in front of me didn't move. So... You know, I'm sitting there going, but I don't honk my horn. I'm I'm on my way to church. (laughs) But then the light turned red. And I'm banging on my steering wheel. And my windows are rolled up, and I'm hollering things I shouldn't be hollering. When my tirade is interrupted with a tap on my window, and I look out my window at a police officer with gun drawn, saying, sir, would you please step outside the car? I need your license. I need your insurance. Need your registration. And I'm thinking to myself, you can't arrest a person for just having a fit in their car. <laughs> and he's marching me back to the cruiser and seating me in the back seat of the car. I'm, a, I, I'm under arrest. And I'm sitting there, and now I've come to my senses, okay? So. I'm sitting there thinking there's got to be, you know, something's wrong. You know, this, and he's on his computer, you know, in the cruiser, you know, they're typing in information and I'm sitting there, it's about 15 minutes and he turns around to me and he says, sir, you can go. (laughs) And I turned to him and I said, well, I didn't think you could arrest me for having, you know, throwing a conniption fit in my car. And he said, well, I didn't arrest you for that. I said, I said, you didn't? He said, no. He said, I, I looked at your car and I saw a cross hanging, dangling from your rearview mirror. And I saw a, a, a sign of the fish sticker in the back of your window. And I saw a Choose Life bumper sticker on the back of your car. And I thought the car was stolen. Now, 
Now, first of all, let me tell you, none of what I just told you is true. <laughs> it didn't happen. But it is true that appearances can be deceiving. And in Malachi chapter 1, we are given a picture of worship in the Old Testament. And in Old Testament worship, what you have is you have a small group of people who are priests, Levites, who serve in the temple, and you have people who bring their animal sacrifices to the priest who come before God and make intercession on behalf of the people and through this <clears throat> sacrifice <clears throat> excuse me, that is offered, the priests present the sacrifice to God on behalf of these people. And the sacrifice is sometimes to atone for sin as a sign of confession. And sometimes the sacrifice is as a thanks offering. Or it could be of any number of offerings. They had several types of sacrifices uh, that people participated in, they would bring these sacrifices to the temple, and the priest would carry out this act of worship. And so here is a group of people, priests and people, who are engrossed in worship. This is a part of their life. And God comes and He gives His commentary on their worship, and it's a strong rebuke from the mouth of God. And beginning in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, what we're going to do is we're going to read through the end of this chapter. And as we read these words, I want you to imagine that you're a priest. And it's your job to lead in the worship of God. And God comes to you, and He says this in verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me? Says the Lord of armies to you priests who despise my name. Yet you ask, have we despised your name? By presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask? When you say the Lord's table is contemptible. When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring that to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Ask the Lord of armies. And now plead for the Lord's favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come for your hands, will he show any of you favor? Ask the Lord of armies. I wish one of you could shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies. And I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations. From the rising of the sun to its setting, incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place. Because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. But you're profaning it when you say, the Lord's table is defiled and 
its product, its food is contemptible. And you also say, look, what a nuisance. And you scorn it, says the Lord of armies. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept that from your hands, asks the Lord? The deceiver is cursed, who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of armies, and my name will be feared among the nations. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for loving us enough to tap on our window and say, come with me and have a seat in the back seat of my car. For Lord, you love us too much not to get our attention. And we ask that we would respond in a way that honors you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Is it possible to gather for worship in a way that insults the very one we claim to be worshiping? Absolutely. There is a kind of worship that God looks upon and says, you might as well have stayed home and not done it at all. Now, our text tells us how we can avoid that. To avoid worthless worship, first of all, give God the best of yourself in keeping with his glorious name. From the very beginning of this prophecy that we read, The Lord of Armies starts talking about his name. It's the greatness of his name. He's talking about revering his name. In fact, there are ten different times in this short book, only four chapters, where God talks about his name. And several are in this passage that we read this morning. And I want us to look at these in Malachi. First of all, I want you to notice with me twice in verse 6. Did you see it? A son honors his father, a servant his master, but if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me, says the Lord of armies, to you priests who what? Despise my name. You ask, how have we despised your name? Now notice three times this is used in verse 11. It says in verse 11, when we read a few moments ago, look at it again with me. Circle these references. My name will be great among the nations from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will present it in what? My name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. Now, Look on with me further. He continues in chapter 2, verse 2. We see this. If you don't listen and if you don't take it to heart to honor what? My name. Then going on to verse 5 in chapter 2. 
My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave these to him. It called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. And then look at chapter 3, verse 16. Notice what it says there. Chapter 3, verse 16. At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. Now look at chapter 4, verse 4, uh, verse 2 rather. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. So here we see from start to finish, God makes it very clear he is concerned with the honoring and reverencing of his name. God says to them, you despise my name in verse 6 of chapter 1. But the people object in verse 6, and this is my paraphrase. Well, how have we done that? We would never despise your name. We would never dishonor your name. We would never say your name is despicable. Man, that, that's a bold claim. And so God, what does he do? He lays it out for them, how they've trivialized, trivialized the greatness of his name. And so in verse 6, he tells them, you do it by presenting defiled food on my altar. And in verse 13, God says, and again, I'm paraphrasing here, okay? But in verse 13, you walk by the altar dedicated to my worship, and you curse and spit on it with contempt. You've grown bored with it. I mean, you're bored. What's so convicting, what's so dangerous, is here is a people who are going through all these motions of worship, and they aren't even aware that what they're doing is offensive to God. Church, what a strong warning this is for us. <laughs> that we can become so engrossed in religious activity and religious routine that we have no clue or have become desensitized to the fact that what we're doing is profaning and defiling God's name. We've got just enough religion to cover up for the fact that our lives are actually full of idols that are represented throughout our city. And that we bow down at their feet week after week and then Sunday after Sunday we come and we toss God a coin. Like God is some beggar on the side of the road with a tin cup. And then we go on living our lives in contempt of his name. Now this is the accusation. The picture of God given in Malachi chapter 1 only heightens the gravity of that accusation. Look at the descriptors God uses as he speaks about him and his relationship to these people. Verse 6, what does he say? I'm a father, you're a son. 
The Ten Commandments, you know, reflect the mind and heart of God. The Fifth Commandment says what? Honor your father and your mother. God says, you're my child. I am your father. I am the author of your life. The very breath that you take comes from me. The fact that you and I are in this place this morning and our heart is beating in perfect rhythm. All of that is due to the fact that God is the one causing to make it happen. He's our father. He's the author of life. But notice also he says in that sixth verse, he says, if I be a master and you are the slave, where is your fear of me? And again, this idea of a master means that he owns everything. It means that he owns every square inch of this city. It means that he owns the mountains. It means that he owns the rivers. It means that he is the master of all. And I think about Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5 and 6, 25 and 26. And it says, To whom will you compare compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One. He brings out the stars by number, and he calls all of them by name. This is the master. The sun in the sky, our sun, which by the way, (laughs) I woke up yesterday morning, I turned to my wife, I said, what is that huge orange thing in the sky? It had been a while since I had seen it. This sun... In the sky is a modest star in our galaxy. We don't think of it that way, but it burns a cool 6,000 degrees centigrade, and it travels at a speed of 150 miles per second. But did you know that it's only one of 100 billion such stars in our galaxy? And that our galaxy is only one of who knows how many galaxies. We now have the capability of telescopes who tell us there is much more beyond what we comprehend even in our own galaxy, that there are black holes in space of who knows goes infinitely far. There's no depth to it. And yet the scripture tells us in Isaiah 40, verse 25, 26, he brings out the stars by number. He calls them by name. He says, hi, Larry. Hey, Betty. Hey, Z1495. This is the master. And so he says to them in verse 6, If I am the master, where is your fear of me? And what name does he use there to describe himself? Lord of armies. We looked at that last week. And he looks at this offering, these acts of worship, this religious routine. And the priests and the people of God were bringing him cheap and mangy sacrifices. That is such a low view of God. It's a picture of God standing on a corner with a tin cup. As if he needs something from us. Friends, God is not poor. 
He doesn't even need our worship. We don't worship God in order to make Him great. He is great, and therefore we worship Him. And so, we look at verse 10 and we get the seriousness of the matter as the Lord says, shut the doors. Stop it. I don't need anything from your hands. And there have been similar scenes to this in other places in Scripture. You've got Paul, the Apostle Paul, in the city of Athens. And as he's walking down the streets of Athens, he's looking to his left and his right, and he's seeing all of these statues, all of these images that have been built to different gods. And he comes to one that's called an unknown god. And then he goes into this place to speak to the people who are getting together just to discuss big ideas every day. That's all they do, day after day after day. And he says to them in Acts 17, 25, that our God is not a God served with human hands, as though he needed anything. A Psalm of Asaph, Psalm 50, Old Testament. Verse 7 through 12 declares, I will not take a bull from your household or male goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you about it, for the world and everything in it is mine. God's greatness is not dependent on our worship. Are you hearing me? What I want us to feel the weight of this morning is that to worship God is a privilege. And there is this dangerous temptation to grow nonchalant, to grow casual, to grow cavalier in the presence of the Father, the Master, the Lord of armies, who right now, surrounding His throne, are awesome, mighty, beautiful creatures who bow down 24-7 and do nothing but cry out, Holy, 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 it's the Lord God Almighty. So beautiful, so magnificent. We're one of them, just one of them to enter this room right now. Their brightness, their gloriousness, their marvelousness would be so great we would just fall on our faces in their presence. These surround the throne of God worshiping Him. And so this morning, if we want to avoid worthless worship, Give God the best of yourself in keeping with His glorious name. Secondly, notice this. Give God the best of what you have in keeping with His absolute holiness. Boldly they ask in verse 6, How have we despised your name? How have we defiled you? Verse 7. 
It's almost like, you get the picture, it's almost like they're daring God, tell me how we're doing this. And God says, challenge accepted. And then he says to them, in verses 7 through 14, beginning at verse 7, you do so by presenting defiled food on my altar. Now what we need to understand is that sacrificial offerings in the Old Testament were a symbol or a picture of worship. People brought a sacrifice as an offering to cover or atone for their sins. It was the way God had told them to worship. And in this way, God would display His holiness through His people through these sacrifices that were offered. And these Old Testament sacrifices were preparing the way that we see in the New Testament of Christ and His holy sacrifice. It's a picture. And I want you to see how they disregarded God's holiness. Hold your place here. And if you would please, turn with me backwards to the book of Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Third book. Go to the left cover. Turn three books over. You're in Leviticus. Chapter 22. Third book in the Bible. And while you're finding it, I just want to give you a little bit of an insight here. When we're reading the prophets, like we're reading Malachi, when we're reading the prophets, they're not giving us any new information. Do you understand that? What they're doing is they're giving us a commentary. The information that is presented in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, is God's word set out for his people and how they are to worship him, how they are to serve him. And what you have when you come to the prophets is you have them calling the people to remember what God had spoken earlier, and then he gives his commentary on how they're either obeying or disobeying those things in their own culture in that particular time. They're not giving us any new information. They're giving us commentary. And so with that in mind, Leviticus chapter 22 teaches us about God's holiness and it applies it to worship, and that's what Malachi is doing in his own day. And God is speaking to Moses and his people in Leviticus chapter 22, verse 1. And he's given them a picture of what worship should look like. And look at it, Leviticus 22, verse 1. It reads this way. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons. Now Aaron and his sons were the priests. To deal respectfully with the holy offerings of the Israelites that they have consecrated to me so that they do not profane my holy name. Now, did you see that? <laughs> Moses, uh, God, through Moses, is instructing the Israelites, here is how worship is supposed to look like. It's supposed to be a reflection of my holiness. And here's how it will be a reflection of my holiness. Be very careful to observe it this way. Treat it with respect. Handle these sacred offerings according to what I have outlined for you consecrate them, set them apart for my honor, for my glory, for my use. 
And then in chapter 22, let your eyes run down to verse 17, he begins to detail what that looks like. And God tells them. Chapter 22, verse 17. Bring two loaves of bread from your settlements as a presentation of offering, each of them made from four quarts of fine flour baked with yeast as first fruits to the Lord. You're to present with the bread seven unblemished male lambs, a year old, one young bull, and two rams. There'll be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offerings and drink offerings, a fire offering of a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You're also to prepare one male goat as a sin offering and two male lambs a year old as a fellowship sacrifice. And the priest will present the lambs with the bread of first fruits as a presentation offering before the Lord. The bread and the two lambs will be holy to the Lord for the priest. On that same day, you are to make a proclamation and hold a sacred assembly. You're not to do any daily work. This is to be a permanent statute wherever you live, throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you are not to reap all the way to the edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the resident alien. I am the Lord, your God. God tells them, do not place any of these things on the altar as an offering made to the Lord by fire. Why does he tell them? Why does he instruct them? Chapter 22. Why does he instruct them? To be careful about their sacrifices. Because chapter 22, verse 31... You are to keep my commands and do them. I am the Lord. You must not profane my holy name. I must be treated as holy among the Israelites. I am the Lord who sets you apart. The one who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Now admittedly our picture of worship today is radically different than what we read about in the Old Testament. But at the same time, we've got to ask ourselves this question. Is it possible in contemporary worship for us to bring to God something less than he requires? Friends, God is serious about holiness. That has not changed from Old Testament to New Testament. And as believers, the Bible tells us that because of the sinless sacrifice of Jesus, listen, the righteousness of God in Christ has been put to our account. And now when God looks at us, he looks at us totally different. Because when he looks at us, he sees what? Jesus in us hallelujah but this is what he says about us you are holy I have consecrated you I have set you apart you are my own peculiar people 
my possession for my name. We're that sacrifice that has been dedicated to the Lord. That holy sacrifice that God says, this is mine. And I read that. And I return to Malachi chapter 1 verse 8. Go there with me. And God says, Well, you're bringing these mangy sacrifices to my altar. Try bringing that to your governor and see where that'll get you. You think the governor would accept that from your hands? And here's the, here's the accusation against his people. He's saying, I see it all the time. You've got a human governor right over here who's unrighteous, by the way, just a human And you're bringing him the very nicest of the nice, so he will treat you right. But here I am over here, and you bring me that which is just the leftovers of your flock. Just, you know, you've got a good animal, but we want the good animals to reproduce. And so we're going to just give the defective ones. We're going to give those away. And that's what he's saying to them. But friends, before we remove the speck of sawdust... In their eyes, we need to remove the plank in ours. On any given Sunday, and I've heard these statistics repeated time after time in roomfuls of pastors. And I've never heard any pastor stand up and say, man, that's just totally off. But I've heard these statistics repeated many times over. The statistic that In the average church, on any given Sunday, any given week, 80% of everything that goes on is done by 20% of the people. And then there are 30% of the people who do the other 20%. And 50% of the people are spectators. Now think about that with me. You go in before your employer. It's your time for your annual review. And you sit down before him and you've written out on a sheet of paper. You come to your interview to be prepared for your annual review. And your boss asks you, tell me what you accomplished this year. How did you help our company this year? And you set your piece of paper in front of him and it's blank. And he looks up at you and he says, there's, there's nothing here. Did you do nothing? Oh, no, 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 no. Quite to the contrary. I was at my station every day. I reported for duty and people knew I was here every day. And then your employer says, well, this has got to change. What are your goals for next year? And he said, oh, those are on the other side. And he flips it over and it's blank. Nothing but a white sheet of paper. Do you not have any goals for this next year? What are your plans to help this company be more productive? Well, I didn't write anything down, but I promise to be here, and I promise to let you know that I'm here. Friends, if we did that, none of us would have a job.
And I can't help but to think God is saying, why are you giving to me what you would never give to your employer? Why are you devoting the best of your life to the things of this world instead of to that which is acceptable in my sight? And you know where I think this is most dangerous? It's in the way that we're parenting our children. We sign them up for baseball, soccer, basketball, band. And we do it early and we travel all over the country with them. We go to tournaments and we pay these fees and we buy them instruments and we get them lessons and we tell them, now you need to practice, you need to practice, you need to practice. And then with their school books, we say, you need to study hard. You need to spend hours studying and get ready because you need to get into college and you need to go to a good college and you need to get a degree. And the reason why you need to get a degree is so you can get a good job and then you can have a good family and provide for your family And you can have all these things that you're going to need in this life. Do this, 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 do that. And then we bring them to church and we drop them off for an hour or two. And we say... Well, I'm investing in my kids. I'm putting some spiritual things in their life. Ladies and gentlemen, God has not called the church to disciple your kids. He's called you to disciple your kids. Now, it's not that any of these things that I've called out before you this morning are bad. They're not bad in and of themselves. None of them are bad. It's not what they're getting. It's what they're not getting. We're teaching them to give their best to the things of the world and give the leftovers to God. We're teaching them to be just like us. So to avoid worship that is worthless, first give God the best of yourself in keeping with His glorious name. Secondly, Give God the best of what you have in keeping with His absolute holiness. And then third, give God the best of yourself and what you have in keeping with His resolute purpose. Verse 11 is really the mega verse of this chapter. Right after God says in verse 10, I'm not going to accept your offering. Look at what He says in verse 11, chapter 1, verse 11. My name will be great among the nations. From the rising of the sun to its setting, incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. Did you catch that? I mean, God 
just told the priests of Israel, the priests of his people, whose job it was to lead in worship, if you shut your doors, if you no longer offer these sacrifices on the altar, if I no longer accept these offerings from your hands, here's what I want you to understand. I'm going to accomplish my purpose. You in or you out? He's resolute. It's gonna happen. Now he'll make sure that it happens. He says that his resolute purpose is to make his global glory known among throughout the earth. And if our church, if our church were to disband today and we were to cease doing all of our mission outreach efforts, the glorious gospel of God would still be made known to the nations. I think about the 118 million Japanese people. Very few of them believers in Christ. There are missionaries. There are some Christians there. Some churches. But not many. I think of the five million Bedouin people who report 40 believers out of five million Bedouin people. Most have never even heard the name of Jesus. I think about the one million Urdu-speaking people in Saudi Arabia who do not know the truth about Jesus Christ. Church, do not think that the Japanese, the Bedouin, will not hear about Jesus, will not know about God's glory. They will hear about it. Now, they may not hear it from us, but they will hear about him through an obedient people. And if we're that obedient people, great. We get the privilege of joining God in his resolute purpose to make his glory known to all of the nations. But if we disobey, we decide we're not going to be a part of that. It'll happen. It's still going to happen. We just won't get the joy of being part of it. Now hear me closely. My prayer for myself, my prayer for this church... It's not that we would be passionate about missions. But that we would be passionate about God. For if we're passionate about God. We will revere his great name. We will worship him in holiness and truth. 
And by means of that, we will embrace and fulfill his great purpose. We will participate in his purposes. Now, everybody knows you're hearing the message for the first time, right? I probably spent, I, I hesitate to say, I probably spent 40 hours, 40 hours on this sermon this week. I say it's one minute of study for every uh, for every hour of preparation is one minute of actual presentation. So you get an hour of study, one minute of talking. I've, I've been living with this for days. And I, I just have to tell you that I just thought about myself. I didn't think about you at all. I just read it, thought about it for myself. And as I thought about it and I prayed about it, I thought to myself, how can I go into the house of God and pretend to be this worshiper? When I myself know my own true condition before God, if anything, I got that. And I saw I am unfit And I'm going to stand up and I'm going to talk about this before God's people as if I'm all that in a bag of chips. And then I remembered the words of Isaiah. Chapter 26, verse 2. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite of heart and trembles at my word. And it's at the point of humility and contrite brokenness before God that Christ says, I'll take your sin upon myself so that you can experience the greatness of God, so that you can stand in His presence. I atone for your sin. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Christ who makes worship possible. The worst thing, though, that we could do is to sit back and to continue in religious activity, our religious routine week after week, in a way that downright insults the God that we claim to be worshiping. And let me show you one more thing, and then we'll finish. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we read, As you come to him a living stone, rejected by people, but honored by God. Now look at verse 5. You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built up to be a holy what? Priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now let your eyes run down the page. Just a few verses. Verse 9. Speaking to the church, he writes, You are a chosen race, a royal what? 
priesthood. A holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Friends, the picture in the Old Testament is of a few priests acting on behalf of the people to lead in worship. The picture of the New Testament is a believer priest, an army of people who are priests unto God because of Jesus and what he has done for us. Now, if God looked at the priest in that day and he said, Don't miss the point of worship. How much more is he saying it to his people in contemporary Christianity? Don't trivialize my greatness. Don't disrespect my holiness. Stop trading in acceptance with God for the applause of the world. From the rising to the setting of the sun, I am making my glory known. And I'm using you and you and you and you to do it. Now, I have no question this morning that our adversary, the devil, would like nothing more than for us just to slam our Bible shut, sing a song, hop in our cars, and then one cell phone call, one argument in the car, one discussion over the lunch table, and we just... Dismiss everything we've heard here this morning. It just flutters off into the sky like one more something something. And so I want us to do something this morning that I'm going to confess to you. It's downright uncomfortable. What I want us to do for two minutes. Two minutes is to bow our heads and close our eyes, nobody looking around. And I want us to have just two minutes of solitude, of quietness before God. And I want you to think about this message, what you heard God say to us this morning. Two minutes, nothing, nothing but that, just silence. Right now. is not to make you feel horrible but that you'll be driven to Christ in your worship 
And this morning in our time of response to God, I pray we'll realize what it means to have a life, not just a song, but a life that declares, hallelujah, praise the Lord. A life of worship. And if that means this morning that you just sit where you are and you pray, then great. If that means you fall on your face before the King of glory, then great. I want to invite you this morning to come before the glory of God seriously, reverently, and reflect on what we have seen in His Word. And I want you to join together with the host in making His glory known in song. And I know that in these moments, there are some people who have never come to the point in your life where you have personally encountered the greatness of God. You've never asked God to forgive you of your sins through Christ. And I want to invite you this morning, for the first time in your life, to run to Jesus, to trust in Christ to save you from your sins. And as you reflect and as you pray, pray something like this. God, I need you to forgive me of my sins. Forgive me for trivializing your greatness, for disregarding your holiness. I want to know you for the first time. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross. I receive you as my Lord and Savior right now. Help me to live for you and to never be ashamed of you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It may be that you made that your prayer this morning for the first time. We are going to stand and we are going to sing. And remember, it's not to offer a song to God. It's to offer our lives to God. The song is just the means through which we do that. And so this morning, while we're doing that, I want to invite you to stand with me now. If you trusted Jesus as your Savior this morning for the first time, I'm going to ask you to come forward. Would you be standing here? Andy will be here at the front to speak with you for a moment, to pray with you and talk with you about next steps as you follow Jesus. Let's join together in worshiping the Lord with our lives.